Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'd like to uh, start off this morning by sharing a story with you about an email that I received on September 1st. It was from a gentleman uh, named John Ma from the United Nations. And he informed me that the United Nations has set up a, a fund to compensate people for being scammed on the internet. And it was a, quite a large amount of money that was set aside. And I had been awarded $5.3 million from that fund, and they were going to send it to my ATM card. All I needed to do was contact the person whose email was uh, shown on this letter, and I was to send him $90. And that $90 would take care of the, the postage and the stamp duty so that I could receive my $5.3 million. Now, obviously, <laughs> this is a scam itself. It purported to be distributing money that was compensating people for being taken advantage of by a scam, but it was a scam. And I would have been very foolish if I had trusted this email and sent my money in. Obviously, there are people that do trust <laughs> emails like this because there are quite a few of them that go out. I've received a number of them um, over the uh, uh, time that I've been in business. But it seems like there are people that think that they're going to get rich by receiving an email from an unknown person and they send in their money and never hear back. And unfortunately, I think many people on the outside of the Christian faith look at Christians as if they're foolish, like the person that might respond to this kind of email. And I hope this morning that you can come away with the understanding that that's not the case, that you have a reason and a basis for trusting who you trust. The title for the sermon this morning is, Who Do You Trust and Why? We're going to be continuing our uh, walk through the uh, book of Matthew, and we're going to be covering Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. You may have legitimate questions. I think many of us do. You ha may have a question, even if you're already a believer, as to whether there's clear evidence for the faith that you have, for the trust that you have in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You also may have been told that faith, the faith that you have, is the opposite of reason. I have to say that I get rather irritated when I hear that kind of, that kind of comment, that faith is the opposite of reason, because I think it's far from it. Faith and trust can be based on reason. It can be rational. And faith and trust can also be irrational. If I had responded to the letter, the email that I received, it would have been an irrational trust that I had placed in that uh, person that had written that email. But trust can also be very, very rational. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I have a driver, um, my driver named uh, Sukur. He's been my driver for over two years now. I trust him. When I told him this morning to come at 8 o'clock, he came promptly as he usually does. He's been my driver for two years, and I know that I can trust him because of the past experience that I've had with him. I know that he's a person that's dependable. He's a person of his word. And if for some reason he wasn't able to come, he would certainly have sent me an email or a WhatsApp message to notify me that he was unable to come. That is a trust that I place in him, which is a reasonable and rational trust. Unlike the 
trust that someone might uh, place in an email like the one I read to you earlier. Now, what are the consequences if you don't really have um, evidence or you don't really feel certain about the trust you have? Well, one of the things you may do is you may be reluctant to share your faith with others, um, especially in a country such as this where the majority faith is different than the one you hold. You may be very reluctant and, and f have questions in your own mind even about whether you should share what you believe because maybe it's not true. Maybe what you believe is true, but maybe it's not someone else's truth. The idea today that there's no such thing as, as absolute truth may, perhaps has seeped into your mind and you are reluctant to try to convince anybody else of your truth because it may not be the only truth. And also, you may feel that uh, you are sitting in, the, in, the, uh, in your home right now um, listening to this, and you may not have made a decision to, to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior because you have doubts, because you don't believe that there's any evidence for the Christian faith. So people may not believe, people may be reluctant to share their faith, and people may have doubts about their own faith because they aren't convinced that there's evidence for the Christian faith. And I hope this morning that we can convince you that there is plenty of evidence. There's a rational basis for your trust or your faith in Jesus Christ. What I'd like to do is, is have you walk away with confidence that your faith that you profess is a faith that is based on rational thinking, it's based on evidence, and uh, there's plenty of that that we're going to look at this morning. Um, and Jesus uh, understood that uh, we needed to have that kind of evidence in order to have faith that we could uh, have a, a confidence in. And I say humble confidence is what I'd like people to have because I want also to understand, people to understand that there needs to be a humility coming together with that confidence. We need to have confidence, but we need to have confidence, um, as someone said, as, as one uh, beggar showing another beggar where to find food. That's the kind of confidence we need to have, not a kind of confidence where we look down and talk down to other people. But we need to be confident that we can uh, share with others and do so humbly. Uh, because they need to hear what we've heard. Now, if I uh, kind of set the stage for the uh, passage this morning, you may recall um, in Matthew uh, 10, uh, Jesus had uh, spoken with uh, his disciples, and he sent them out two by two into the community. He asked them to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers, to drive out demons. These were the kind of things that he did. and he, They were asked to go and do miraculous things, heal the sick, even raise the dead. The 12 disciples were supposed to be doing when they were be, being sent out. We um, then let, read last week and looked at last week with the assistance of John Zhang. We looked at the doubts that uh, John the Baptist had and he sent his disciples to talk to Jesus and asked Jesus, are you really indeed the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And what, what did Jesus do? Jesus provided him with evidence. As John mentioned last week, Jesus replied, he says, go back and tell him what you hear and see. Go and show him the evidence that I am who I say I am. And he said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are healed, those that are deaf hear, the dead are raised, this was evidence 
that Jesus was providing to John the Baptist's disciples to convince John the Baptist that he was who he claimed to be. After this, there's a story that we read about in Luke 10, and it's not in um, the book of Matthew. But this is where Jesus sends out disciples again. But this time, he's not sending out 12. He's sending out 72 disciples. And he's also asking them to go out and do miraculous things in the community and announce the kingdom of God. This is the context for the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning because it appears from the book of Luke that what Jesus uh, said and what's recorded in Matthew is coming from this event where he's about to um, send the 72 out. He's giving them a pep talk about what they're going to face when they go out and share their faith in the community. This is the passage we'll read this morning. Matthew eleven twenty through 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles were performed in you, had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now let's, let's walk through this passage. Um, I recognize there's a lot of uh, names, a lot of towns that you may not recognize, so we're going to help, uh, help uh, uh, unpack that. But Jesus starts off this passage by saying, it, it says, Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. And we're going to look at some of those towns in a second. He denounced them because they did not repent. He was presenting evidence. His disciples were presenting evidence as they went out to the various towns and preached. They were doing miracles. They were providing evidence that what they said was true. It wasn't just someone sharing their feelings, uh, sharing their opinions, but they were able to do miracles as evidence that what they said was true. They were doing something supernatural, which could only come from God. Now, we throw out the word repent, and I thought it might be helpful to explain a little bit about what the word really means. Um, I, I looked up on Google, and, and it traces the use of certain words over uh, years, and you can see that in recent years, the word repent is, is rarely used. I'd say it is more used in uh, Indonesia uh, than it uh, ever was in the United States, where I come from. But a good definition of repent and what Jesus was trying to get the people in these towns to do was turn away from their sin. Sin is, is disobedience to God. He was trying to get them to repent and turn away from the sin that they were committing. Um, and I, I like uh, in the book of Acts, uh, the apostle Paul is speaking to King Agrippa and he's talking about what his mission in life was as an apostle. And he said, I preached that people should repent, that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate the repentance by their deeds. When we talk about repentance, we talk, in about, talk about what you turn away from. You turn away from doing the things that you shouldn't be doing or not doing the things that you should. You turn away from that and you turn toward God 
and you turn to obey God and do what God has asked you to do. And then you demonstrate the repentance by the deeds that you do, by the actions that you, you take. So it's not just something where you mouth the words and you say, I, I don't want to do that anymore, but you continue to do it. But you truly repent. It's something that comes from your heart. You've decided and been convicted of the fact that what you have done is wrong and that you need to repent of that and um, move on, turn to God, obey him, and do what is right. Now, I'd like to, to uh, have a little geography lesson here. <laughs> because you're going to need to understand uh, this as we look at this passage. I've uh, highlighted in the red three cities, uh, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. Um, these were three towns that were mentioned in the passage. They were three towns uh, very close to the Sea of Galilee. You may recall that uh, Jesus had uh, been born in Bethlehem, but he was raised as a child in Nazareth. And then when he began his ministry, he set Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee as his uh, headquarters for his ministry. Um, Chorazin is a town uh, within uh, three kilometers, I believe, of Capernaum. And uh, Bethsaida is a town uh, approximately five kilometers from uh, uh, Capernaum. And I was uh, looking up on the map today, the, the distance of, of six kilometers which is more than the distance between these towns, is actually the distance between Grahaniaga here and Monas. So it's not very far. <laughs> these three towns were in an easy walking distance of each other. And now this particular map shows the location of uh, Tyre and Sidon. And Tyre and Sidon were uh, two cities that were in the uh, Gentile area. That's indicated by the fact that it's not in the area that's uh, shaded green. And as you may have known, the, the Jewish people at this time uh, looked down on the Gentiles. They looked down on the non-Jews uh, because they uh, thought that they were um, immoral and um, they felt themselves to be superior because they followed the, the one true God. As we look at this passage again, Jesus says, Woe to Chorazin. We saw that not far away, three kilometers or so away from Capernaum. We see Jesus say, Woe to Bethsaida which is perhaps five kilometers away. Um, and the reason he, he says what he does is because he says there were miracles performed in those cities. There was evidence given in those cities that if those miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, the Gentile areas, the non-Jewish areas, those people would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Tyre and Sidon would uh, be let off lightly compared with Chorazin and Bethsaida because they had not um, seen the miracles. And if they had, they probably would have repented. That may have been a reminder of, of what happened in the days of, of uh, uh, Nineveh, in the days of Jonah. You may recall that uh, Jonah um, was told he needed to go and preach in uh, Nineveh. Uh, the capital of Assyria, and he was told that he needed to call people to repentance. And he didn't want to go, because he was a Jew, and Nineveh was a Gentile area. But eventually, after he was swallowed by the whale, he ended up uh, going to Nineveh, and they did what he feared that they would do, which was to repent in sackcloth and ashes. This is uh, what it would have looked like when people would have 
repented in sackcloth and ashes. They would have uh, taken off their regular clothes. They would have put on something like a sack, maybe a burlap sack. Um, it would have been very itchy, very uncomfortable. And they would have covered themselves in ashes. And that was a reminder to them of the, of the ruin uh, that they faced um, because of God's uh, upcoming judgment and what they wanted to avoid by repenting of their sin. Now let's look at what some of the miracles were that Jesus did in those cities, that he condemned them for not um, reacting positively based on the evidence that he presented. Well, um, first of all, Bethsaida, uh, incidentally, was the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. So three of the apostles, uh, apostles um, would have uh, been from that town and would have been listening to Jesus when he condemned the, condemned the town that they came from. Well, we, we saw and see in Mark 8 where Jesus uh, healed the, the blind man. Um, that's one of the miracles that Jesus did in Bethsaida. Another miracle that you may not uh, remember came and happened in Bethsaida was where Jesus fed over 5,000 men. And there were probably women and children, so who knows how many people there were at that time. But with only five loaves and two fishes, um, Jesus uh, provided food for everyone. And there were 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over, it says. And then Jesus continues on to the passage. Um, and we don't, by the way, have any um, particular miracles that, mentioned that, that were mentioned in the Chorazin, but I'm sure there were many miracles there as well. And here in Capernaum, he condemns Capernaum. He says, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Hades is, is another place um, where it's the area where the dead are, or uh, hell. It says, if the miracles that had been performed in Capernaum, which was his headquarters for ministry, had been performed in Sodom, of Sodom and Gomorrah. The city would have certainly repented and would not have been destroyed by God. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Ouch. <laughs> I think that is quite a condemnation. Sodom was known as probably the most immoral city in the Old Testament. And for Jesus to tell them that God would treat Sodom more lightly than he did, uh, or will, Capernaum, is, is quite a condemnation of Capernaum. And why does he condemn them? Because there were miracles performed. There was evidence given that they rejected for whatever reason. You know, this, this reminds me of a, of a story, um, I think back on 45 years ago when I was in university. I was uh, living in a co-ed dormitory uh, when I was going to uh, Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And I was, uh, had been a Christian for several years at that point, and I was, uh, I remember sitting in the dorm room of, of this girl down the hall, and I was talking to her about uh, my Christian faith, and sharing with her in hopes that she would decide to follow Christ. And she listened to me. She seemed very uh, understanding, very appreciative of what I had to say. And um, she, at this point, I thought she was uh, actually going to make a decision to, to follow Christ. And as I asked her if she had decided that she wanted to, to do so, to, to repent, have Jesus become uh, her Lord uh, and Savior. Her response to me was this. She said, you know, I believe everything you say. But she says, I can't. I can't. Because if I follow Christ, 
I know that I'm going to have to stop sleeping with my boyfriend, and I'm not willing to do that. I don't know why these people in Capernaum, in Bethsaida, in Chorazin, why they rejected uh, Jesus, why they rejected the evidence, the miracles that he presented, which were supernatural, which would have been clear evidence that God was, was behind what Jesus was saying. But they did, for whatever reason. Maybe they, were, they ignored him, they were too busy making money, they were too busy uh, enjoying their lives. Um, maybe they were afraid of losing their positions in the community. Um, who knows? But for whatever reason, they rejected the evidence. But the point is, there was plenty of evidence in those cities. And Jesus condemned them because they didn't believe the evidence. Look what happens in Capernaum. Um, this is the, the place, as I said, was Jesus' headquarters. Uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John were fishermen. They were based in that city. And Matthew, the tax collector, was also based there. One of the stories we he heard about a few chapters ago in Matthew was that Jesus healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law uh, when uh, she was sick. And she, was, uh, she got up and started serving them immediately. Uh, we also read uh, in, in Matthew 8 that Jesus healed many people who were demon-possessed and sick. And you may recall at one point there were so many people that were coming to him to be healed of their diseases that he ended up uh, getting in a boat and going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to, to take, a, take a break. We also read the story, um, which I preached on a, a little while ago, about Jesus healing the man who was paralyzed. Um, this uh, man was lowered down through the roof of a house, and Jesus healed him, um, and he was able to walk. That occurred also in uh, the city of Capernaum. And Sodom, to which he, he favorably compares Sodom to Capernaum, this is what it says about Sodom and Gomorrah in, in uh, Jude 7. It says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to the sexual immorality or to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. If you were a, a resident of Capernaum, wouldn't you have been shocked for Jesus to say that God is going to be easier on Sodom than he would be on Capernaum? Because Capernaum ignored the evidence uh, that Jesus had presented, the miracles that he did in their presence, and the miracles that the apostles did in their presence. What miracles did he do? Well, we, we don't know all the miracles because they're not all recorded. We just know some of the miracles that he did. But as uh, we read, and Jesus, when he replied to the disciples of John the Baptist, he reminded them that Jesus allowed the blind to see. He gave the blind sight. He, the lame could walk. Those who had leprosy were cleaned. The, those that were deaf could hear. The dead even were raised. And Jesus says, you disciples of John the Baptist, you've seen these things. So you go back and tell John what you've seen. The evidence that you've seen for the fact that I am indeed the Messiah. In the book of John, John says this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. John was an eyewitness. The apostle John was an eyewitness who wrote the book of John. He was an eyewitness to the many miracles that Jesus did. And he says, there are more than we can even put in this book, like I put in my letters. But he says, I'm writing down the miracles that I saw with my own eyes, 
because I want you to believe that there is evidence to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing in him, you will have life in his name. You will have eternal life. And Jesus, uh, John rather, wanted people to come to the realization that Jesus offered that forgiveness and that salvation. It wasn't just Jesus, by the way, that could do miraculous things. We also read about the fact that the apostles could as well. Uh, if you look at uh, throughout the, the book of, of uh, Acts, you'll see various miracles that were uh, done by the apostles. And it's also interesting to see why the miracles were done. The miracles weren't just to entertain people. Um, the miracles were served as confirmation from God that what the messenger said was true. God was trying to confirm to people that through this evidence that it wasn't just someone's opinion, it wasn't just someone's idea, there was actually confirmation of that message that it was from God because it was a supernatural event. It says in Acts 14.3, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, and this is in Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord and who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do and perform signs and wonders. This was God's way of confirming that what Paul and Barnabas said in Iconium was true. They could do miraculous things. And in fact, all of the apostles um, were able to do that. We saw that earlier when the 12 apostles were sent out into the towns, and they were told to even not only heal the sick, but even raise the dead. But we see that one of the qualifications to be an apostle was the fact that you could do miraculous things. You could do signs, wonders, and miracles. Um, in the uh, book of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is uh, apparently responding to a challenge uh, of his apostleship. People were questioning whether he was a true apostle. And he's defending himself, and he says, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, this is important because our New Testament books are written either by the apostles themselves or the close companions of apostles. That's an additional reason we can trust those books, because they were written by people that God enabled to do signs, wonders, and miracles, and, and, or the, the close friends of such people. So we can have confidence. There's evidence there that we have to believe what was written down. Now, can I rely on the witnesses to these events? Well, it's true. What we have here is we have a recording of the events themselves, but we haven't seen the events with our own eyes. We have to rely on the testimony of the people that saw with their own eyes what happened. Uh, as I said before, uh, the Apostle John, he was there as an apostle. He wrote the book of John, he wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the book of Revelation, and he was uh, saying there are so many stories I can't even tell you of what I, what I saw, the, the miracles that I saw. Here we have the Apostle Peter, also one of the twelve. And he, was, he says, I want you to know that I did not follow cleverly devised stories. I didn't just make this stuff up. And he's referring here to the transfiguration when Peter, James, and John uh, were with Jesus. And they, they heard God uh, speak that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He says, we're eyewitnesses of this. And eventually the Apostle Peter um, even was willing to be crucified, upside down, we understand, in Rome, because of his faith. He didn't uh, turn around and say, well, I don't really believe that. It really didn't happen. He was willing to die for it because he knew it was true. 
And in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul uh, talks about the many witnesses that were still alive at this time. We believe the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians was written probably about 25 years after the events that we read about in uh, the Gospels. And at that point in time, Paul said, if you don't believe me, you, there's 500 people that saw Jesus after his resurrection. And there, most of those people are alive today if you want to talk to a witness. Those people may not have seen um, themselves the miracles that Jesus did, as we haven't. But he was able to rely, um, and they should be able to rely on the witnesses that heard these things. I'd also like to um, contrast the Christian faith with the other faiths in, in this world. Um, if we look at Buddhism, if we look at Hinduism, if we look at Islam, what evidence is there that what the leaders of those faiths uh, said was true? Um, if you look at the, the Al-Quran, there's a couple um, uh, surah and ayat in the Al-Quran where people are asking Muhammad to provide them with a, with a sign, with a miracle, that what he said was true. And he wasn't able to provide any. And in the, one, of the, uh, hic, uh, one of the passages we read here, it says in the Sunnah that the prophet, that's Muhammad, um, when he was asked about miracles and the fact that uh, every prophet, he said, was able to do miracles and the fact that he couldn't. He said this, every prophet has given, was given miracles because of which people believe, but what I have been given is divine inspiration, which Allah has revealed unto, to me. I've asked some of my Muslim colleagues, I said, one of the reasons I believe in the Christian faith, and only the Christian faith, to be true, is because there's a lot of evidence, there's plenty of evidence in the miracles that Jesus did, and we haven't even gotten to Jesus' resurrection yet. And I asked, what evidence is there that what Muhammad said was true? Did Muhammad do any miracle? And the response I've often gotten was taken from this particular passage, where they'll say, well, Muhammad did the greatest miracle of all. He gave us the Al-Quran. <laughs> um, I find that a fairly unconvincing uh, argument in terms of the evidence that uh, we should believe uh, Muhammad. And I think Jesus is the only one, and Jesus and the Judeo-Christian faith, we're starting even with, uh, with Moses, where you see the many miracles that were done by those that followed um, the Lord. Evidence that what they said was true. Now, in closing, I'd like to look at the, the day of judgment, because some of you may be bothered. <laughs> you've, you've heard that God is a loving God, and you're bothered by the fact that um, Jesus is talking about the fact there will be a day of judgment. He says in this particular passage that we were looking at this morning, it would be worse for Chorazin and Bethsaida than for Tyre and Sidon. It would be worse for Capernaum than for Sodom. What about the day of judgment? Well, let's look at God's character. God is not just a loving God, as we all believe. He's a loving and just God. This, in this passage from Exodus 34, this is how God describes his own character. This is when he passes before Moses on, the, on Mount Sinai. And this is how the Lord describes himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's a God of love and compassion. That's a God that we're very attracted to. But there's another part of God's character too, and that is that he's a just God. 
He's slow to anger, but he does get angry. He gets angry at sin. He gets angry at rebellion. And it says, as that passage continues, it says God does not leave the guilty unpunished. If God is a just God, he cannot look the other way when people sin against him or sin against others. There must be a price to be paid for that. The good news um, is that the one that's going to be our judge on that day of judgment is Jesus. And it says in John 5 that everyone will be raised from the dead. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. We're all going to have to stand before Jesus. Everyone in this world will stand before Jesus to be judged based on what they've done. And it says in the book of Hebrews, if we escape, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? If we ignore the, the, the offer of salvation, if we don't repent, we don't turn to God, and we don't prove our repentance by our deeds. Um, we have a terrible day uh, to face on the day of judgment. These miracles, it says in the book of Hebrews, were confirmed to us by those who heard him, those are the apostles, and also God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. Again, we see that the signs, wonders, and miracles are given as evidence that what Jesus said was true. We don't have to close our eyes. We don't have to put our brain on the shelf. We have a reason for believing what we believe, and there's evidence for it. Not only is Jesus going to be the judge, but he's also one that has the ability to forgive sins. And we saw that earlier in chapter 9 of Matthew. Jesus has the authority. God has given the authority to forgive sins. And we uh, are fortunate that our sins can be forgiven if we do turn around to God and repent. On the day of the Pentecost, after Jesus' ascension, uh, Peter stood before thousands of people. And he did very much what Jesus has done. He pointed to the miracles, wonders, and signs of Jesus and said that this is accreditation by God that he was who he said he was. And he says, based on this, based on the fact you've crucified this man who God has accredited, God has given evidence for, he says, he calls on the people in the crowd to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I hope for those that are listening that don't currently believe, I hope you will do exactly what Peter said. Repent and be forgiven of your sin. Don't use this excuse that there's no evidence in the Christian faith, that you just have to have blind faith, that you just have to close your eyes and believe. That's a bunch of hogwash. Jesus understood, God understood that we needed to have evidence to believe what we believe. We need to have a reliable, a rational trust in God. And he's given us every basis to have that a reliable trust. And I'd like to close by having us listen to a song that describes the, the uniqueness of God, the uniqueness of the Christian faith. It's the, the chorus to the song say, Come and behold him, the one and the only, and he is. Cry out, sing holy, forever a holy God. Come and worship the holy God. And the definition of holy is somebody exalted or worthy of complete devotion as perfect in goodness and righteousness. God is full of goodness and righteousness. He's full of love and justice. And we should keep this in mind as we sing this song and ponder uh, the evidence 
that we presented by Jesus. And the evidence that he's condemning um, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum for not reacting to when they saw the miracles that he had done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've created us as we are. We thank you that you've put, made us in your image, which means that we have, we have minds, we have the ability to think, we have the ability to reason, and that you understand that and you've given us plenty of evidence through the miracles that have been done by Jesus, uh, the apostles. These are evidences, Father. We recognize that we have every right to believe what they say and trust in what they say. And I pray for all of us that, pray for those that may trust for the first time, and I pray for those that already believe but have, have doubts about their faith, as, as John the Baptist did, that they would be uh, filled with a, a humble confidence that the faith they have is an evidence-backed faith, is a rational faith, and that they would uh, go out and share the good news with others uh, based on this humble confidence. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.